Well, for a number of reasons, it has become very popular in our day to become a, a DIYer. Anyone who has attempted any kind of home renovation has probably taken before and after pictures. Even if you're, if you're like me, you're not very skilled, you know the, 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 the great satisfaction of seeing the pictures when the project is complete, what it used to look like and what it looks like today. Well, it's the same, the similar thing happens when uh, people would desire to lose a lot of weight. Uh, it, it, it's so satisfying to see positive transformation. And in a sense, that's what we're going to see today in the life of Paul. He was a transformed man. Now, obviously not in weight loss or in home renovation, but he was a, tra- a changed man, transformed by the power of God. But before we jump into his before and after pictures, let's take a, a, a moment at least to consider the background to this text. We jumped obviously right into the middle of it, didn't we? It's a very long story in this, in this portion of, of Acts, and we jumped in at the end of it. So let me give you a little context of what's happening, and, uh, and hopefully uh, we'll see the different characters in this story and, and why uh, they're all so important. Last week, if you were here, you remember that we saw Paul coming into Jerusalem with an offering that he had collected from the various churches that he had gone about on his third missionary journey collecting an offering for the, the saints in Jerusalem that were suffering. It was a terrible time of suffering, and, and Paul, in his traveling and, and ministering to many others, he collected an offering to deliver to Jerusalem. And so he came and brought it to James and the rest of the elders. But then he faced a dilemma, a dilemma that had the potential of bringing greater harm to the church. You remember there was a rumor about Paul that was spreading throughout the Jews. It was said that he was encouraging Jews to throw away their Jewish heritage and all their traditions. And also, at this time, it was the the national feast of of Pentecost. There were Jews from all over that had traveled to Jerusalem for this great feast. There were even some that had come from Ephesus. And if you remember what happened in Ephesus, maybe you don't, but if you don't, Paul ministered in Ephesus for quite a long time. But there were some Jews that became very hostile toward him. And they organized an angry mob against Paul, and he literally had to flee for his life. Well, some of those very same Jews were in Jerusalem. They saw Paul in the city. They saw him with a man named Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. And then they saw Paul later in the week in the temple. So they stirred up the crowd, and mayhem ensued. They dragged Paul out of the temple and would have killed him, intending to kill him. But the soldiers, seeing the mayhem, rushed in and intervened. So Paul was taken into custody, and then the questioning begins. However, when the Romans were about to send Paul off to Caesarea, a plot became known. The the Jews were not satisfied with Paul being sent to Caesarea. They were going to plan, they were planning an ambush to kill him. And so the the Romans, the tribune appointed 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen to lead him out of Jerusalem safely. Why would the Romans be so concerned and take such extreme measures to protect Paul? Well, when they were about to flog him as a part of their typical questioning, Paul protested. 
because of his Roman citizenship. They were already guilty of treating him unjustly, but when they discovered that he was a true Roman citizen, the treatment of Paul changed. They would face severe penalties if it had gone to the point of flogging. And so they are going to protect this Paul and try to gain some, save some face as well. So Paul was sent to a higher court in Caesarea to the governor named Felix to be questioned again. And this is when Paul starts being passed around from one official to the next because no one wanted to violate Roman law, obviously, but they also wanted to please the Jews. They were afraid of the Jews in some way. They didn't want to anger them. And Paul had many opportunities to speak with the governor Felix. He was kept in his prison for over two years. But when Festus replaced Felix, and I get these two turned around all the time, so if I ever say Felix again, I mean Festus. At this point going forward, it's going to be Festus. And when Festus replaced Felix, two wonderful boy names, by the way, if you know. Uh, but Festus, the Jews renewed their attacks against Paul. It's been two years. Now there's a new governor in, in town. And so their desire to kill Paul was enraged again. And they, they asked Festus, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time, would you have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem to stand trial? What Festus didn't know was that they were secretly planning an ambush so he could kill Paul. But Festus didn't want to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Caesarea, and he would question Paul there. So Festus requires that they send a delegation. Send your leaders with me or along as well that they may accuse Paul officially. So Paul gives a very brief defense before Festus in Acts 25. But Festus was not as inquisitive as Felix had been. Festus really wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he asked Paul if he would like to go back to Jerusalem to stand trial there. But Paul knew that he had done nothing wrong according to Jewish law. There was no point in going back to Jerusalem, and it would certainly lead to his death. So he exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, and he appealed to Caesar. Now you can start maybe seeing some of the connection with what we just read and how Agrippa said at the very end he could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Paul, to save his own skin, appeals to Caesar, don't send me back to Jerusalem. I've done nothing wrong according to Jewish law. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. So at this point, Festus is completely unsure as to what he should do with Paul. And so he does what any politician would do. He waits. He sends him back into prison. But to send him to Rome, Festus would need to have a very clear statement of charges that would justify sending him to Rome. And Festus knew that Paul had not violated Roman law, even in this short time with him. So he's in a jam and he delays. In the meantime, in the wonderful, wise providence of God, King Agrippa visits Festus. King Agrippa makes this visit to the new governor, and Festus tells him all about this strange case that was left over by Felix. 
and listen to how Festus summarized Paul's case. He said, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, Festus had zero knowledge about Jesus. This is all about some dead man named Jesus that Paul says is alive. Well, Agrippa wants to meet Paul. Now, who's Agrippa? He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was responsible for the murder of the babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. His great-uncle was responsible for the execution of John the Baptist. His dad executed James and had Peter arrested, but was eaten by worms and died at the hand of God because he accepted the praise of the people as if he was God. This was a man that was familiar with, the Jew- with Judaism, was familiar or would have been familiar with the stories of the Christians and, and Jesus, the movement of the, of the Christians. Much more familiar than Festus would have been. In fact, Rome considered this Agrippa to be an authority on the Jewish religion. And so in reality, Festus is asking Agrippa for his expert advice on what to do about this Jew and their problems. And so that brings us up to our reading. Now, my intention today is to look at this passage as an example for us. We're not going to go verse by verse, and you're probably relieved after that long introduction. We're not going to go verse by verse through Paul's defense, but rather I want us to see Paul as an example of how to share the gospel, because that's what Paul does. There's no doubt that Paul fully understood what was at stake. He knew his life was on the line. And he was presenting a defense in part to save his life. But he had a greater concern. At the end of this passage in verse 29, Paul reveals his primary motive. He says, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Yes, he wants to protect his life, obviously. But his primary goal is to see Festus and Agrippa believe in Christ. So Paul begins by acknowledging that it is a privilege for him to be able to make a defense against all the accusations of the Jews before someone who is familiar with Jewish customs and controversy. Now that's not a slight at Festus. That's an acknowledgement that everybody in the room would have known. Agrippa is far more knowledgeable than Festus. And also this is not flattering. Paul is not giving false praise. He's not saying things about Agrippa that are not true in order to get something better for himself. I think we're all, or many of us are tempted to use flattery as a means to get our own way, to give false praise so that someone will either appreciate what we do more or for whatever selfish motive, we will use false praise, flattery for that purpose. But Paul is not flattering Agrippa. He's stating facts as a way to introduce his case. He is genuinely grateful that Agrippa is there to hear his testimony and give expert advice. And that's what the rest of this passage is. It's Paul's testimony. 
one of the most effective tools that we have in witnessing is our own personal experience with Christ. And after all, that's what witnessing is all about, isn't it? The Apostle Paul often used his own conversion experience to share the gospel with others. His, his conversion is recorded in Acts 9. We, we didn't cover that in, in this series. There's too much to try to cover in one, uh, in just a couple months in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 9, you could read in detail Paul's actual conversion. But then in Acts 22, and here again in Acts 26, Paul repeats his conversion experience as a means to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Witnessing is not as complicated as we sometimes make it out to be. As we review his conversion story, I think we'll find, we should be able to see a simple outline that will help us bear witness to others as well. Now, obviously, in our individual stories, we'll have many different aspects, but three elements will be evident in every story. Let's begin with the elements of Paul's conversion, and then we'll compare them with our own. First, Paul explains what his life was like before he believed in Christ. My life before I believed in Christ. Paul believed, or before he believed in Christ, he was a Pharisee. Uh, we've heard that word before, and in other words, it simply means that he was a, he was a devout and zealous religious person, but he was totally lost. Being a Pharisee didn't produce his salvation, but he was a Pharisee. You may remember another Pharisee named Nicodemus, an expert in the law, a master theologian, and yet Jesus said to Nicodemus, in order for you to be saved, you must be born all over again. Likewise, Paul was very devout, and he also, yet he also needed Christ. The Pharisees made up a, a, a part of the religious elite in that day. In the New Testament, we read about scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and in, in very simple terms, the, the scribes were lawyers that were tasked with the, the teaching and the copying of the Scriptures, as you would imagine the name scribe would imply. The Pharisees and Sadducees were priestly leaders who were divided by their beliefs. The Pharisees believed in the future resurrection, the great resurrection that was to come. The Sadducees rejected anything of the sort like that. There was sharp disagreement between them. Most of the time, they despised each other. And earlier on, we didn't read this portion, but earlier on, Paul even uses that division among them to get out of the trouble. He senses the, 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 the intensity of their, their questioning. He brings up the resurrection. And it causes a sharp dispute between these two groups. The Pharisees ended up siding with Paul briefly uh, until the whole idea of the Gentiles comes back. Uh, but the Pharisees and Gentiles had this sharp dispute. The one area of commonality that they had, they all hated Christ and anyone who, who followed him. Well, Paul was considered a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His zeal for the law and his hatred for Christ were legendary. People in other communities knew about this terror to the church. In verses 9 through 12, he describes himself as a persecutor of Christians. Now, at that time, when he was persecuting the church, Paul didn't regard that as being anything wrong. In fact, he thought he was serving God by, by 
destroying Christians. He would arrest them, throw them in jail. But he didn't merely throw them in jail for a 30-day period and then let them go. No, he was responsible for their torture and even their murder. He says in verse 10 that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul is not merely saying that I was in agreement with their being killed. I, I gave the thumbs down. Kill them. Other places, Paul says that he was ravaging the church. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul overseeing the stoning of Stephen in our, in our Tuesday morning men's Bible study. And we tend to think, I'm afraid, that, that the stoning of Stephen, the, the martyrdom of Stephen is what caused the church to scatter. And it was part of it. But that was the beginning of a horrifying attack against the church. Paul was ravaging the church. He actually thought he was doing God a service by getting rid of these Christians. But that was Paul's life before. Before he met Christ, before he believed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. What was your life like? I doubt, at least I hope, that none of you have been responsible for the killing of Christians. I'm, I'm sure that we haven't put our thumbs down on the stoning of anybody. In my own life, I don't remember ever being hostile toward Christianity. In fact, there's never been a day in my life that I did not know about the love of Christ. I loved going to church and Sunday school. However, I also remember feeling horrible about the way that I was living. In church and in my, my family's home, I did my best to obey and stay out of trouble. I knew how to smile and win people's uh, approval. But in school and running around the neighborhood, I was completely different. Growing up at First Pres and hearing my dad preach the gospel every week, Every close of the worship service singing, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross. Every week, feeling absolutely miserable and guilty. I could sing on Sunday, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then on Monday, tell the filthiest joke. By the time I reached high school, I was miserable. I saw absolutely no purpose for my life at all. The overwhelming guilt, the lack of purpose led me to consider taking my own life on several occasions. And that brings us to the second element of a conversion story. The first is what our life was like before we believed in Christ. The second is how I came to believe in Christ. Paul briefly describes his experience on the Damascus Road. It's described in obviously much more detail in the actual event in, in, in Acts 9. But here in Acts 26, he simply says, I saw a light. The light, and from we learned in Acts 9, it was the glory of God. Up to that moment, he had been in utter spiritual darkness. But then he saw the light of God. And he adds that I also saw, or I also heard a voice. Now, Paul knew the voices of the prophets from the Old Testament. But that day, he heard the voice of the Son of God. 
And listen to what Jesus said to him. He says in verse 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, a goat was simply a, a stick, and we have more modern and technical tools, but it's simply it's still the same thing. It was used to prod the, the cattle or the oxen to move in a certain direction or to, to go. Jesus was comparing Paul to a, to a stubborn ox that wouldn't obey. It's hard to kick against the goats, isn't it, Paul? What did God use to bring Paul to Christ? Jesus showed Paul that the death of Stephen, the deaths of all these godly men and women that he persecuted were sins against him. Jesus revealed Paul's sin, and, and he took it personally. It's as if Jesus was saying that Paul did not persecute people. He persecuted Jesus. Paul was attacking God when he attacked God's people. Now, again, your sin and mine are, I'm sure, are very different than the great persecutor of the church. But they are no less vile to God. Certainly, our sins affect people around us, and some affect people much more severely than others, no question. But the greatest injury is against God himself. King David cried out to God after he was convicted and humbled, and he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David had committed the, the sin of adultery. Had, 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 it led to the murder of the, of the girl's husband. His sin was certainly against Uriah, the husband, and against Bathsheba, and against his country. But David says, against you, you only have I sinned. The greatest fault is against my God. Yes, our sin has a broad effect on people, but the greatest injury is the offense to God. Many of you have a story like mine. You don't remember a day that you don't know or that you didn't know about God's love. But, like me as well, you can look back and you can see a transformation that has taken place. I honestly have no idea when I was precisely made alive. I know that I was dead in sin and I'm alive today. But I'm not sure when my exact spiritual birth took place. People like me who grew up in a church that faithfully proclaimed the gospel oftentimes have a tendency to view our conversion as a process but I've never really been convinced that biblically we can say that. I know it looks like that, but I do believe that regeneration is an act of God where we were dead in sin and He makes us alive. Now, we may not recognize when that actually happened. It may look to us to be more like a process like it did with me. I mean, if I, if I asked Jesus into my heart once, I did it a thousand times as a kid. I don't know, honestly when it really took root the first time and when I was regenerated. But I can look back and I know today that I have been transformed and am being transformed even more today. There's a confusion, I think, between salvation and sanctification, regeneration and sanctification. And probably I was made alive at a very young age but struggled with doubts and lack of assurance because of my immaturity, but it was a process of growing to understand what has already taken place. 
so many times I wanted to be like the world even though I knew that I was loved by God. Well, I don't want to stray too far from the, the main, my main point, which is simply this. I know at one time I was dead in sin and covered with guilt, but I have been made alive and all my sin has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I have been forgiven and I'm being made more and more every day, not as quickly as I would like, but every day being made more and more to look like my Savior. For those of you who came to believe in Christ as adults, it's probably a lot easier for you to be able to look and see the moments of transformation and when a life was changed and started changing more and more and more. It became obvious to you. There was a time when you did not believe in Christ and you were spiritually dead. But God, as Paul said to the Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. Well, that leads us to the last element. We saw Paul's life before he believed in Christ. We saw how he came to Christ briefly. Now, lastly, my life after I believed in Christ. Because we know that the experience of salvation is not the end of the story. Conversion is only the beginning because Jesus saves us to make a difference in our lives, to transform our lives. Paul, the persecutor of the church, became Paul, the dedicated preacher of the faith. Paul says to Agrippa, I I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was a changed man. And then he says in verse 22, I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. When Christ saves us, he gives us a mission. Paul understood his mission. I'm simply proclaiming what the prophets and Moses have always proclaimed. I have been, a, I've been changed by, the, by Christ, and he has given me a mission. Now, certainly, our mission will be different than Paul's. Our purpose in life will be different from one another sometimes. But Christ saves us so that we can live for him in this world. Saves us so he can transform our lives and use us to make a difference in the lives of the people around us as well. He gives us a mission that has a message. Our message is simply Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sin and rose again from the dead, same as the apostles. Same message. The mission may vary depending upon gifts that God has given us, but the message remains the same. Paul was always willing to admit what his life was like before Christ, but he centered his message not on himself, but on Christ. To the Corinthians he wrote, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, to understand why the crucifixion is necessary, you have to understand the sin that was, that was conquered. So Paul would oftentimes talk about his life before, but only so that he could point to Christ and Christ crucified. He shared at the last, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the heart of the Christian gospel, Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and in Christ you are going to live. Well, at this point, Festus accuses Paul of being out of his mind. You're obviously a man of great learning, Paul, but you are mad. You are nuts. 
Agrippa's response to Paul is different. Doesn't really get any better, but in verse 28, he says, basically, I'm almost persuaded. You think in such a short time you'd persuade me, Paul? He doesn't deny that he believes in the prophets, that he, he doesn't deny that, but you think you're going to persuade me in such a short time? It, it almost implies, and maybe and many do believe that it does state, I'm almost persuaded, Paul. But that's not good enough. It's not enough to have a basic knowledge of these events. It's not enough to have a basic understanding of all the things that happened in the Scriptures like this. To be almost persuaded. No, the, the reality is we must repent of our sin. We must acknowledge the reality of our own sin and come to Christ for forgiveness. Paul said to Agrippa, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Sadly, Agrippa made the wrong response. As far as I've been able to find, there's no biblical or historical evidence that Agrippa ever came to believe in Christ. And there's another good example to us that being successful in witnessing is not about the results. It's about being faithful. Faithful to to bear witness, to tell what you've experienced in Christ. Our job is simply to tell what God has done. And it's His job, His glorious work of transforming people. When I began this message, I, I mentioned the before and after pictures of DIY projects. However, salvation is not a DIY project. You can't do it yourself. No one is able to renovate their lives and clean themselves up and make themselves acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul was very clear as an example of a before and an after. Paul did not clean himself up. He was the persecutor of Christ who became the, the preacher of Christ by the work of God the Spirit. Now, I told you at the, how empty I had felt at one time in my life, being riddled with guilt and overwhelmed by a lack of purpose. But there came a time when my hope shifted. And I, again, I don't know if that was a moment that I was regenerated or if that was a moment of understanding of what God did before. But there came a point, a clear point, where my hope shifted. At one time, I thought I would be accepted by God by who I was and by what I did. And yet I came to understand who I really was a miserable sinner. And that's when my life really began to change more rapidly. Transformation began. Today, I have a far better understanding of my purpose in this world. But the question that we have to face is, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? You must admit your own sin. You must admit that you can't do it yourself. And you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says that you will be saved. Tell him today that you believe that he died in your place. Tell him today that, that you need to be saved. Years, many, many years ago, I think I was ninth grade, um, the church youth group, this church, I uh, was in the youth group, my brother, and I and, um, believe he was, I don't think he was married yet, uh, but they were volunteers in the youth group whole bunch of us went down to the plaza 
to see the lights turn on uh, there around Thanksgiving. Bunch of us uh, with thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, like we still do in Kansas City today. Somehow, for some reason, I got separated from our group. I rode with my brother, and they parked in a garage. I had no idea where that garage was. I thought I was on the right street. And walking up and down blocks at a time, back and forth, trying to find that parking garage, trying to find my brother. And I couldn't find him. Uh, And I couldn't find the garage. And I'm by myself. And as I come down the the street, the traffic, of course, is terrible. But a car window rolls down. The guy yells, Jim. And it was Lois Russell's son, Randy, with a car full of our youth. And he said, come here. Come here. You can get in our car. And I said, no, I know where they are. I'll find them. So many of us are like that. So many of us are are like that spiritually where where the, the... Christ is so obvious. You need Christ or you're going to be condemned for all eternity. Oh, I'm all right. I'll figure it out. I've got got good things going on in my life. I'll get cleaned up a little bit first. I said no. And I turned and went back up the hill, walking the other way, looking for that garage. To no avail. I went another block. Maybe I'm on the wrong street. And Randy pulls the ground again. Jim, come on, get in the car. No, I'll be all right. Jim, get in the car. And, and thankfully I did and was del- and delivered home. Uh, the, the, really, the humorous part of that story was my mom's reaction to my brother when he came back without me. And, but that's a sermon for another day on the justice of God. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the point, again, the gospel is so simple, isn't it? Those of us that have been raised in it, that have heard it all our lives, we think, why wouldn't someone believe it? It's so obvious. They're so close. Just like Agrippa. Almost persuaded. If that's you today, please humble yourself. Acknowledge you're never going to find it on your own. It's just not going to happen. You need Christ. And he will transform you. He will begin the process of what we know as sanctification, making you more and more like him. Come to the family of God. There's room.